Well, praise the Lord. Amen. 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 What a joy it is to worship the Lord together, sing praises to his holy name. Uh, Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Genesis and the second chapter, Genesis chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 17. Genesis 2, 8 through 17, and if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden toward the east. There he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, A river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that went around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Now the gold of that land is good. The delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that went around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It is the one that went east of Ashur, or Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then Yahweh God took the man and set him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, You will surely die. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, as has been said, for the opportunity to come together and to be instructed by your powerful powerful word. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our time together, that your name would be high and lifted up, and we pray that you would be glorified through it all. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, I'm eager to dive in this morning as we've finally made it. We've finally made it to the garden. The Garden of Eden. And this really brief description and historical account of mankind's being placed in this garden paradise, this place where man and woman, husband and wife, will begin to carry out their charge to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. We've finally made it to this garden And actually, we're going to look at three gardens today, spending the vast majority of our time considering the one in chapter 2. But I'll just tell you right from the get-go, just so there's no surprises, the three gardens are the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and though not formally recognized as such, the city garden and the new Jerusalem and the new heavens on the new earth. Now, up to this last week, I had planned on calling the sermon A Tale of Three Gardens, However, considering the recent trends in modern-day American evangelicalism to question the authority, infallibility, inspiration, and inerrancy of the God-breathed scriptures, I didn't think anyone needed any more of a nudge or excuse to doubt the historicity of the garden accounts, plural. I'm here to tell you this morning, my friends, the words of Genesis chapter 2 are no tale. 
the content of this second chapter is not that of some fable. It's not metaphorical. It's not merely symbolic or poetic language. This is how humankind began. We've talked a lot about origins these past few months, haven't we? Well, if you've got any interest at all in exploring your lineage and you're curious about the thickest branches of your family tree, let me save you the $39.99 Ancestry.com enrollment fee and direct your attention to Genesis chapter 2. We hear a lot of people talking about equality these days. A lot of talk about impartiality and fairness. Okay, I'll play along. Everyone in here this morning, everyone hearing my voice this morning, why, even everyone out there, in fact, everyone on the face of this planet at this moment, regardless of background, nationality, socioeconomic status, whether rich or poor, gay or straight, black or white, male or female, only two genders, young or old, male or single, skinny or fat, tall or dumb, dumb or smart, uh, skinny or fat, <laughs> tall or short, not tall or dumb. <laughs> that was a Freudian slip, if I've ever seen. <laughs> Did not mean that. I'm only about 5'6". Don't... <laughs> tall or short, dumb or smart, yes, even believer or unbeliever, all share a common ancestry. All of humanity, every man, woman, and child has descended from the two people mentioned in this second chapter, meaning we're all one big happy family, all right? So if you have any interest in your ultimate origins, save your money. This is the place to go, Genesis 1 and 2, and don't forget about chapter 3. But I cannot call this message the tale of free gardens. Because to do so would only feed into the narcissistic arrogance or ignorance of those who consider themselves to be the most intellectually gifted among us. Yes, even within evangelicalism. Case in point, let me quickly quote an article from nationalpublicradio.com. Now, before you start to focus on something else or plug your ears, which is usually my first reaction when anyone says, let me quote an article from National Public Radio... I'll just say this article is like from 12 years ago. And while NPR wasn't any good back then either, it certainly wasn't as evil as it is today. But bear with me for two minutes here. Reading from an article titled, Evangelicals Question the Existence of Adam and Eve, it says this, quote, According to the Bible, Genesis 2-7, this is how humanity began. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. God then called the man Adam, later created Eve from Adam's rib. Polls by Gallup and the Pew Research Center find that four out of ten Americans believe this account. Four out of ten? Yowza. The article goes on. It is a central tenet for much of conservative Christianity, from evangelicals to confessional churches such as the Christian Reformed Church. But now, some conservative scholars are saying publicly that they can no longer believe the Genesis account. 
Asked how likely it is that we all descend from Adam and Eve, Dennis Venema, a biologist at Trinity Western University and senior fellow at BioLogos Foundation, a Christian group that tries to reconcile faith and science, replies, that would be against all the genomic evidence that we've assembled over the last 20 years. So not likely at all. Venema says there's no way we can be traced back to a single couple. He says, with the mapping of the human genome, it is clear that modern humans emerged from other primates as a large population long before the Genesis time frame of a few thousand years ago. And given the genetic variation of people today, he says scientists can't get that population size below 10,000 people at any time in our evolutionary history. Now, that's just one example of many, many Another, John Schneider, uh, formerly taught theology at Calvin College, agreed with Venema, saying this, evolution makes it pretty clear that in nature and in the moral experience of human beings, there never was any such paradise to be lost. So Christians, I think, have a challenge, have a job on their hands to reformulate some of their traditions about human beginnings, end quote. You know why these guys say this about Genesis chapter 2, along with countless other biologists, scientists, professors, scholars, both inside and outside of Christendom? You know why even many, so many so-called pastors are saying this about Genesis chapter 2, maybe even more so today? Because of what will go on to happen in Genesis chapter 3. Because they have succumbed to the lie which kicks off that narrative account when the devil himself asked Eve, did God really say... Did God really say that? That's the ultimate reason, but there's another reason for fallen man's rejection of this garden account, and it's one that we touched on last week. And honestly, between us, it's a lot more uh, palatable and justifiable than just saying, uh, well, the uh, historical account that stood for four millennia has been toppled by recent evidences and hypotheses presented within the past 20 years. And that is the incomprehensibility, the unfathomability of life and environment of absolute perfection and and goodness and righteousness where all things existed for and are centered around the glorification and exaltation of its creator. From humans to animals to plants to the ground they all stand upon, everything operated within perfect harmony and in perfect unity with their maker, but now it's all gone. It's all gone. Again, not one of us in here, not one of us out there knows how to operate within such a perfect setting. We've never known anything but how to survive in an environment where disaster, disunity, disarray, depravity, death, and decay reign supreme. That's all we've ever known. This is all we know. This, this life of sorrow, this world with devils filled, this earth that is replete with visible chaos and conflict. And because we cannot imagine such a perfect, pure, pristine place or uh, perfect relationships today, some tend to filter these words of Genesis 2 through the lens of Genesis 3. Through the lens of their own experiences and, and chalk it all up to myth or Hebrew poetry. But we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to take God's word for what he says here. 
this Edenic garden was a real place at a real time with real people. Real people who had real relationship with their powerful yet personal creator. Real people whose actions had real impact on everyone that would come after them. Real people who, again, God formed from the dust of the ground. Look at verse 8. Then Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden toward the east. There he placed the man whom he had formed. So in verse 7, Yahweh God, he forms the man from the dust of the ground, from the dirt. He breathes the breath of life into his nostrils, making him a living being, different from the animals, however, because unlike them, man was made in God's image, male and female, made in the image of our Father in heaven, and not in, as Spurgeon said, the image of their father who are up in a tree. Just as Yahweh was active in the formation of human life, he was active in the propagation and formation of plant life as he actively planted a garden, a garden in Eden, a real place which Moses' original readers would have probably recognized. The word for garden here is the word gant which means exactly what you think it means. It's an enclosed, bordered area containing vegetations, plants for food, trees with fruit. In fact, because of what we'll go on to read about, uh, about these trees here in a moment and the rivers that flowed by them and around them, some have actually called this an orchard. A beautifully contained, perfect, pleasant orchard. Make no mistake, it was beautiful. In the fullest sense of the word, it was altogether good. In fact, it stood out from the already very good creation that we've read about in Genesis chapter 1. It was distinct from the rest. Even the name Eden or Aden means pleasure, pleasant, terrestrial paradise, delightful. I think that's the best rendering. This was a garden of delight. What a great word that is. It was altogether delightful. And the Lord God placed this perfectly formed man in this perfectly delightful paradise of Eden here in verse 8. Now, this is very important as we go along here. We cannot forget that the environment that Adam was formed into and was placed into was perfect. In fact, he was perfect as well well at this point. We could easily substitute the word delightful in our outlines for the word perfect. James Boyce said, Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 17 describes mankind's life on this earth prior to the curse, and it describes it as being perfect. Perfect. Man was perfect. No defects. He had a perfect body, unlike us. He had perfect fellowship with both God and creation. Woman? No defects, perfect body, uh, perfect fellowship with both God and creation. And at this point, they both existed in a perfect environment, placed there, of course, by the infinitely perfect God, meaning man cannot blame his environment for what happens in chapter 3. And man cannot blame God for what happens in chapter 3. Man had every opportunity, not only to survive, but to thrive in chapter 2. More on that in a minute, but first, verse 9. Out of the ground, Yahweh caused to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance and good for food. 
The tree of life is also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Throughout our time, we've seeing God speak into being things that had not previously existed. It's no big deal for the mighty God of the heaven and the earth to bring forth planets and suns and moons and stars and lands and oceans into existence ex nihilo or from nothing by the word of his power. But it's also no biggie for the personal Yahweh God to make provision for his creatures in this delightful garden, okay? And, and his goodness... As a result of his tender, gracious nature, he caused these trees to sprout up in all their glorious splendor. Moses writes, they were desirable in appearance. They were pleasing to the eye. Now, we have to admit, even on this corrupted and cursed earth, we have beautiful, desirable trees, right? Still, in his gracious provision, we see trees bearing beautiful, various fruits in an array of splendid colors. We have yellow bananas to the soft orange peaches and apricots to the deep purples of the plum, to vivid green apples and bright red pomegranates and cherries, all given as gifts from the Lord, hanging right off the trees of this fallen world. You know, a bunch of guys were out in L.A. last month. This uh, rental we were staying at had a big, beautiful lemon tree right in our backyard here. You could just pluck them off and peel them back, take a big old bite, and have your senses overwhelmed by this citrusy goodness. That's what you had here in this garden. This, but this was in abundance. This, there was a whole orchard and, and garden of desirable fruits displaying colors we may not even know about. Fruits we may not even know about, and all in perfect condition. No bruises, no brown spots, no rotten sections you have to cut off, no worms, no pesticides, probably no bird droppings on them, no little bugs secreting who knows what on the outside of the peel, the peels of those lemons, which some guys ate unwashed. By the way, I'm not going to name names, but no, no. Not in this garden. These trees were perfect. They were delightful. They were desirable. Even the two trees referenced here, two trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this tree which we're going to look at in more weeks as we go along, this tree which was the chosen instrument God used to bring about the fall of mankind, a tree which, as far as we can tell, wasn't some spooky moonlit, straggly old tree with flashing lightning all around it and a swarm of bats flying out of it. It wasn't some horror tree. No, this was desirable in appearance. It's a good-looking tree. Genesis 3.6 confirms this. The woman, Eve, saw that this tree was good. It was good for food, that it was a delight. It was a pleasure to the eye. The tree was desirable. These were perfect, delightful, desirable trees in the midst of a perfect, delightful garden on this flawless, perfectly delightful, and perfectly good earth. And it was all prepared for the man and his wife. That's why folks deny it. We can't even begin to think about sustained life in an environment like this. So then it must be a myth, right? But it was no myth. God saw all that he had created, and behold, it was very good. And God set this part, uh, this place apart as to say, 
here's where my creation's really going to shine, this garden here. John Calvin said, uh, no corner of the earth was then barren, nor was there even any which was not exceedingly rich and fertile, but that that benediction of God, which was elsewhere comparatively moderate, had in this place poured itself wonderfully forth. For not only was there an abundant supply of food, but with it it was added a sweetness for the gratification of the palate and beauty to feast the eyes. It was the beautiful among the beautiful. It was paradise. It was untainted, unadulterated paradise. It was creation at its best. Now, we live in Colorado, very nice state. We're surrounded by some of the best of the best in the world in terms of scenery and adventure. We've got hiking trails and rafting and skiing and mountain biking. Just take your dog 25 minutes that way, you're there. But in these days, what's uh, typically good from far is far from good, right? At times, a trip up there to those hills there will also have you contending with weeds, thorn bushes, falling down trees. Pokey, itchy, rash-causing, sometimes poisonous plants, not to mention other fallen people. Their entitled attitudes, right? <laughs> Tourists abounding. There's car traffic. There's foot traffic. And there are little pink baggies that contain the little gifts left behind by their dogs who are also on the trail. Not to mention the mountain lions who might jump out at any moment to maul you or poor Fido as you go along. Same with every exotic destination around the whole world. Oh, everyone loves to talk about Hawaii. I'm going to Hawaii. You're going to Hawaii on our honeymoon. We're going to Hawaii. Well, that's great. There's beautiful beaches. There's pristine, crystal clear oceans, it seems. But the drug trade has run rampant out there. So be sure to watch out for those meth pipes that might be lodged in the sand or the bloodthirsty sharks that are swimming in the ocean. What I'm saying is this. You can't go anywhere on this earth. It's all been corrupted. That's all we've ever known. Even if we go to the choicest spots in all the world, just to get away from it all, it's still going to be a vacation experience in a totally fallen world. And at the end of the day, we can't escape ourselves. The curse is inescapable. Not here, though. Not in Genesis chapter 2. This garden was perfectly delightful in every way. Even the waters were perfect. There had to be freshwater sharks, but if there were sharks in these waters, I'm sure they ate figs and berries. There was no filtration necessary for these waters. Look at verse 10. Moses says this. Now a river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that went around the whole land of Havilah, There's gold, where there is gold. Now the gold of that land is good. The delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that went around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It is the one that went around, excuse me, went east of Asher or Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So we've seen 
the delightful formation of man. We've seen the delightful preparation of Eden. Now the delightful saturation of the garden. One main river coming out of Eden down to this garden, splitting off, going four separate ways. Two we're familiar with, two we aren't familiar with. But all which represent real flowing bodies of water, which I believe the Lord highlights and emphasizes here as to say, listen, this is not some fictional account here. This river went around Cush. This one went around Havilah. And just because we may not know of these rivers today, that doesn't mean they didn't exist at one point, right? That happens, you know. Things go away. Have you ever seen the Ark of the Covenant? Well, does that mean it didn't exist? Well, what's the difference between the ark and a river? Especially a pre-flood river in pre-flood creation. Frankly, what's worth drawing our attention to is not the fact that there are two rivers and some cities in a garden we don't have evidence for, but the fact that God lists the Tigris and the Euphrates and Assyria, all which we still know of today, and the land of Cush, and the Cushites, who would go on to be referenced by Moses and Ezekiel and Samuel and Jeremiah, leading many people to believe that It's modern-day Ethiopia, though it's much more likely that it's describing somewhere in Arabia. Nobody really knows for sure. What we do know is this. There were four literal rivers that came from a literal Eden, which flowed through the lands containing literal minerals and gemstones, including literal gold and onyx and delium, which some folks say was like a pearl-like stone, and others say it was like a a gummy-like resin. We also know that the Lord God established perfect, life-giving, plant-sustaining water to this perfect, delightful garden. Four rivers, which only further communicates his gracious provision for this man and woman to both survive and thrive in. Not only that, but if you look at verse 15, you'll you'll notice that man was set there for a purpose, He wasn't just to lay around and get fat on pomegranates all day, but he was there to perform tasks and duties. He was there to work. Though, remember, this is pre-curse work, which means it was both fully satisfying and fully glorifying to the Lord. Adam never had a bad day at the office. Verse 15 says this, Then Yahweh God took the man, set him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, what gives here? I don't know if you noticed this, but I thought he already placed the man in the garden back in verse 8. Now he's setting him in the garden again. This has tripped a lot of people up. It's a real gotcha moment for the critics, but I don't see why. I believe verse 8 talks about his placing the perfectly formed man in Eden. Verse 15 talks about his setting the man in the garden, but either way, I think that's a silly thing to fuss over. Much more important is what man was charged with doing there. He was charged to Uh, keep the garden, to cultivate the garden. What does this mean to cultivate? Well, it actually means to serve. He was serving in the garden, keeping it up, tending to it perhaps by various means. Maybe he was arranging it. Maybe he was cutting back where it needed cut it back. Maybe he was planting seeds from existing plants. I'm not sure exactly what this entailed, but I can tell you this. Adam had the greenest thumb in the history of the world. Everything that he touched was perfect. No weeds, no moles, no pests, no tainted chemical-filled water, no rotting ground. It was all good. It was all perfect. It was all 
perfect. So perfect we can't even imagine it. I can't even imagine a garden being perfectly maintained with no threat of weeds. You all know about that weed out in front of my house, which I've dubbed Greta's weed. I cannot imagine life without weeds. I can't imagine a river without just a little bit of contamination, right? Where you need one of those straws to filter it out. I can't imagine strolling through an orchard or, or a field with my kids without any fear of getting pricked by a burr or stung by a wasp or bitten by a bug or a snake. I can't imagine a perfect environment because I've never been in one. I have no idea what this is like. I just have to take it for what it says. There are only two human beings who have ever existed in such a place. Only two who have ever experienced life in this setting. Only two. This man and his wife. This this man whom the Lord would go on to literally speak to in verse 16. Look at this. He, He speaks with this man. He commands the man. Yahweh God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it. And the day you eat from it, you will surely die. I've called this point the delightful probation. As in it, we see a clear boundary now being placed upon man in this perfect environment. As Yahweh says, you shall not. This is a prohibition. But not before we, we, see, we really see a, a remarkable permission. Namely, God saying, man, any of these trees, any tree you want, All these trees, who knows how many different types of trees there are. There could have been dozens. There could have been hundreds. There could have been thousands of different trees for all we know. Again, I don't know how many trees there were besides the two that are listed here. But if even we sin-filled men and women on a corrupted and cursed earth get to enjoy lemon and apple and pear and plum and banana and coconut and cherry trees, how much more so did Adam and Eve get to partake in this perfect, delightful garden? There was probably so many trees we can't even think about it. And God says, have Adam. Have Adam. Adam. Eat to your heart's content. And Adam's heart was always content, right? Well, that is until he heard these words. You shall not eat of that one. Don't eat from that tree, that tree of the the knowledge of good and evil. And the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Uh, Actually, this is best translated, dying, you will die. Dying, you will die. Now, all of a sudden, Adam's thinking, well, this tree, man, that's really good looking. Adam and his wife are thinking, don't eat from that tree, huh? Hmm, I wonder why not. Therefore, man, in verses 16 through the rest of the chapter, is now on a type of probation, okay? Uh, a probation is a time period where he will be evaluated based on his obedience and his abilities, a close review of his performance, a test even, which is why some have rightly deemed this a covenant of works, S. Lewis Johnson asked this, was the, t- 
test a covenant of works? Well, what are the elements of a covenant? Well, a covenant is an arrangement between two parties. Sometimes it's conditional, sometimes it is unconditional. But nevertheless, it is an arrangement between two parties. Was this an arrangement between two parties? It would seem to be. Covenants ordinarily have a condition. There is a condition expressed here. Ordinarily, covenants have penalties. They also have promises. They have stipulations of certain rewards and stipulations of certain probations. Well, that is exactly what we have in this arrangement in the Garden of Eden. The Westminster Confession of Faith is correct. It is a covenant. It is a covenant which ultimately was led uh, was to lead through successful response on the part of Adam to an everlasting holiness, which is better than a temporary holiness. And it was to lead to an immutable perfection, which is better than a mutable pers- perfection. And listen here. It was ultimately to lead to a heaven in the presence of God rather than simply life in the paradise of Eden. So, Lewis says, excuse me, S. Lewis Johnson says, we will call it the covenant of works. It was a conditional covenant. God instituted it. It came from God. Both Ad- but Adam evidently accepted its provisions, and it rested upon the issue of his obedience to the word of God. So we will call it a covenant of works and be satisfied with the name. And I would agree. And this is a covenant which corresponds with the mention of Yahweh God, the personal covenant-keeping name of God. But why do I say this was a delightful probation when so much was at stake here? Think about it. God says, I have given you everything necessary to sustain your life on this earth forever. And there is also a possibility with that tree of life that you will live in such an environment eternally. But if you eat of that tree, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. I'm telling you this. You will die. Therefore, it's a delightful probation for two reasons. Number one, that the opportunity for eternal life and glory was even given in the first place to human beings. We just blew it. And number two, it was delightful because just as he does today, God clearly articulated and communicated what he expected from his creatures through his revealed word. He told us. He told Adam. In Adam's case, he told him audibly, maybe face-to-face. In our case, written. Right? So the question is, are we going to believe what he has clearly communicated to us and then obey it? Or will we, like Adam and so many after him, even today, buy into the temptation from Satan which whispers into our ears, did God really say that? Indeed, did God really say that? That's what it will boil down to in the next chapter, the coming chapter. Adam, you either believe my word or you don't. You either believe what I've clearly communicated to you both the blessings and the consequences of obeying or disobeying my word, or you don't. And we know that unfortunately, at the end of the day, Adam did not believe the word of God. He believed the word of the serpent. 
He believed uh, the word of the accuser, the adversary. She ate from it, then he ate from it, and the eyes of both of them were opened. And it was at that moment of unbelief that not only Adam, not only Eve, but the whole human race, everyone born of his seed, would not only be subjected to physical death, but it was at that moment when not only Adam, not only Eve, but the whole of the human race, everyone born of Adam's seed, would be subject to spiritual death. For Adam and Eve, it happened when they were fully grown. For all of us, we were born into, even conceived into this spiritually dead condition. I want you to imagine just for a moment that moment that they took that bite of that fruit. Can you imagine the shame that overcame them knowing what they know, knowing the environment that they were in? The moment he eats that fruit, he, he dies spiritually. Meaning that fellowship is destroyed, that Unity with God is destroyed. The peace is destroyed. The perfection, even the perfect environment and man's relationship to all the earth is destroyed. There is spiritual separation, spiritual alienation, again, not only from other creatures, but most importantly from our Creator. And next week we're going to get into this much in much more detail in the coming uh, chapters here. Uh, in fact... As we get into a five-part series in Genesis 3, through, 3, 1 through 18, which I'm calling From Total Delight to Total Depravity. But here we all are, right? 6,000 years later, 6 to 10. Still trudging our way through this corrupted and cursed environment as we deal with the results of Adam's unbelief and, and subsequent disobedience as sin entered into the world through Adam and s- death through sin and death spread to all men because all sin. We are dead men walking. So of course we all sin. We are all inheritors of the spiritual death and sinful nature that came through Adam, our representative in this probationary period. All of us, we're all together here. Every human being who has ever or will ever live is born into this condemned state. All except for one. Okay? One who was not a descendant of Adam. One who did not come from Adam's line or from Adam's seed. One who was not born of natural means, but rather one who was sent sent into this world to be supernaturally conceived of through the power of the Holy Spirit, one who was born of a virgin, one who was perfect in every way, one who lived a life of sinlessness, a spotless life of perfect obedience to the will of his Father God. Where Adam failed, this one prevailed. The very same God we read about here in Genesis 1 and 2, and we'll go on to read about in chapters 3 through Revelation 22, this one who was sent into the world in order to reconcile, reunite, and restore the relationship between a holy God and now sinful man. And that is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to this earth, which was made through him and for him, this perfect son of God, God in human flesh, and he walked among us. He walked upon this corrupted and cursed planet, and again, he came for a purpose. 
and I want to show you what that is. I want to take you very quickly to another garden. I want to take you from the garden of pleasure and delight to the garden of pain and agony. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, under the seat. Matthew 26. We'll start at verse 36. Then Jesus, excuse me, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, or Olive Press, uh, and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here, keep watch with me. He went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and prayed. Luke says, being in agony, he was praying very fervently. His sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Distressed, agony, grieved to the point of death, so stressed, so overwhelmed that perhaps his capillaries were bursting and mingling with his perspiration, this perfectly holy, perfectly sinless son of God who lays face down, prostrate on this corrupted and cursed earth? Why? Why? Why the agony? Well, look at the content of his prayer in verse 39. Matthew said, He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. What cup is he referring to as he prays in agony in this garden? The answer is the cup of the righteous wrath of his Father in heaven, the cup of judgment, of condemnation, the cup of divine justice being carried out, poured out against sinful men and women. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk all spoke of this cup or this chalice of wrath, divine wrath poured out from the right hand of the Father, this cup which symbolized shame and dishonor and disgrace and punishment, and which spoke of man's separation from this holy, holy, holy God because of our iniquity and our sin, and Jesus knows it. He knows he was sent into this world to drink of this cup, to accomplish that reconciliation. He, he knows a price had to be paid in order to, for, for God to remain perfectly holy and perfectly just. Somebody had to pay for those transgressions. Bulls and goats ain't cutting it. Not in an eternal sense. They can never pay the price for our sin. They, they never had the power to remove our sin permanently. No, there was only one perfect sacrifice who could bear the fullness of divine wrath. And that was the sinless Son of God. The spotless Lamb of God who is essentially on his face in this garden saying, Father, if there is any other way, 
If there's any other way to accomplish that which I was sent in this world to accomplish, if, the, if there's any other way to pay the penalty for the sin of human beings, pay the penalty for their falling short, if, if there's any other way than my being separated from you for the first time in all of eternity as I bear the full sin debt of all who would believe in your word, if there's any other way, please, let's take that route. Let's do that instead. Let's just let this wrathful cup of spiritual death and separation from you pass from me. Let it pass. But immediately, knowing this was indeed sovereignly decreed from before the foundation of the earth, he says in verse 39, yet not as I will, but as you will. Again in verse 42, my father, if this cup cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Adam and Eve, not as you will, but as we will. All of us, in our natural condition before being born again, not as you will, but as I will. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, face down in the dirt, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew says he gets up from the dirt, comes back to his disciples who are sleeping, multiple times, by the way, and tells them, behold, The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Not hurry up. Let's flee and run away from the one who betrays me. But rather, get up. Let's run to him. Let's go to him. Let's go to meet him. My betrayer is at hand. Now is the hour that I do what I came to do. Now is the time that they take me and they bound me like a common prisoner and they take me into the Sanhedrin where I will be mocked and spit upon and punched in the face and and called a blasphemer. Now is the time when they will Now is the time when my own people who I came to give my life for will condemn me to death, deliver me up into the hands of lawless men, our our enemies, who will further beat me and spit upon me and whip my back with a cat of nine tails. They'll scourge the skin from off my body. Now is the time when they will put a crown of thorns on my head and ram it into my skull and put a purple robe over my back and mock me and pay homage to me as a faux king or pay faux homage to me as a king. Now is the time when they will make me carry the instrument of my death, the most excruciatingly humiliating uh, form of torturous death that the world knew at that point will make me carry it through the streets up to Golgotha where they will nail me to it and I will collapse and my my lungs will collapse under the weight of my own body until I suffocate. Come, get up, let us go. 
Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And I know what I'll do on that cross. I know that I will breathe my last, bow my head, saying it is finished. I know that I'm here to give my life as a a ransom for many to be crucified and killed and buried and raised again on the third day to ascend back up to the right hand of my Father on high and I'm doing it all for you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and me. If we truly belong to our Creator by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's what happened on that cross. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And it was satisfied for all of his people. Every believer, including every every faithful man or woman since Adam. All the way up to and including today. Just like that. The the spiritual death was defeated for all of his people. The relationship between them and sinful men. uh, Excuse me. The relationship between sinful men and women. And a holy God was restored. And I want to ask you this morning, are you one of those? Are you among those who belong to the Lord? How can I possibly know that, you say? Well, again, do you take him at his word? Do you you believe his written word, all of it, all of it, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3? Do you believe it? And as a result, do you know him and and love him and live for him and trust him and obey him and praise him daily for what's been done for you through the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Do, Do you have his spirit dwelling on the inside of you? Do you truly? Do you have his spirit dwelling on the inside of you? His spirit who not only, has not only enabled you to possess the faith required for so great a reconciliation, but who has sealed you for everlasting life in his presence. Do you have the Holy Spirit? I trust that you do. If not, I, I would implore you, I would beg you today. No matter what you've done in your life, no, ma- no matter how you've lived your life of unbelief and spiritual death up to this day, to believe the word of God, to believe on it, and then bend your knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. He is the only one whose sacrifice is sufficient to atone for your everlasting soul, to save your everlasting soul. So I would implore you to ask him to forgive you today, to enable you to believe in him today, to enable you to turn from your sin and wickedness, to spend the rest of your life on this earth giving him praise and thanks and adoration and You'd spend the rest of your days on earth longing with all other true believers for the life to come, eternal life, in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, in which we are told there will be another tree, though a very familiar tree, along with the description of what that environment will look like. Now listen to this. If you're a believer, you should lean forward a little bit. Maybe be on the edge of your seat. This is what's coming only for you. This is not for unbelievers. It's not for everybody. The equality thing is gone. This is... Only for believers. John says in Revelation 22, Then he, that's an angel who's been showing John the things to come, giving him a heavenly tour, 
John says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit. Ooh, we know about that tree. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his slaves will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. They will reign forever and ever. That's an eternity that awaits believers in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, a perfectly pure, sinless, curseless eternity filled with all the beauties and delights of Eden and more. There will be rivers. There will be the tree of life with a variety of fruits and leaves. There will be activity. We will serve the king as his willing and obedient slaves, his eternal possession, who will not only radiate with his glorious grace, but will spend all of eternity ruling and reigning with him. With him. And that's what makes heaven heaven, right? We shall be his people. God himself will be among us. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. And I'll just say it straight up. I hope you're there. I hope you're there. I really do. I want to encourage you to leave this place this morning considering these three gardens. Read about them. Study them. Know them. And specifically the last two. The first one, that's not for us. That's gone. Uh, But the second and what came from the second was absolutely necessary to get us to the third. So know it and believe it and trust it. That's my hope for all of you in this room this morning to Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and to long to be with him in glory forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's uh, pray now and Noel and the music team will come up and close us in musical worship. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together to read your word, be instructed by it. And we thank you for the hope of eternal life because of what has been done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for his sacrifice. We thank you for his willingness to go to that cross to be separated from you so that we wouldn't have to be. We just love you, Lord. We love your word. We can't wait to see you face to face. We long for that day. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.